Welcome back to Grounds for Discussion. I am Becky. And I'm Laura. And today we have a special treat for you all. So uh, usually we pick a book, discuss it, while well, we read it, then discuss it, then rate it. However, we wanted to do something a little bit different this time. So um, Laura, do you want to share what we're doing these next couple weeks? Sure. Um, so originally we kind of thought it'd be really fun to do um, some people that we know, mm-hmm. um, either as authors or as just friends or family members and ask them to pick a book yeah and we would read it I'll I'll read it and then have them on the podcast with us Mm -hmm. um and so we actually decided that would be really fun and to kick it off we actually decided to do our mom's book Mm -hmm. so for those of you that don't know our mom Bev Price um wrote a book back in like 1980 Mm -hmm. um and it's called Andy's Home Now And it's basically just a, um, you know, memoir slash journal slash um, just kind of telling of the facts, but also what God has done um, through their son, Andy, who passed away in 1979. Um, And so, yeah, so we are, we read our mom's book Mm -hmm. and um, we will not be writing it because of course (laughs) we love it. (laughs) And, um, but yeah, so we actually decided it would be fun to just read the book and then interview our parents. And so to be perfectly transparent, this is, you know, it, it it was, we thought it'd be fun to do on the podcast, but the podcast is kind of a, (laughs) an afterthought really. We really mostly just wanted to be able to have, Mm -hmm. um, their thoughts on this just for posterity and for our family, um, to sort of reconnect over this, this. Um, this little boy. So mm-hmm. that is what we did. Yeah. We were able to get our parents um, interviewed while they were down here in Florida and um, talk to them about all of this and about the yeah. book. And so it's, that it's kind of cool because um, her book is not uh, in print. It never really was. She, like we had a PDF of it, and one of my sisters turned it like she. Uh, turned that into a book, and so our family... Yeah, like self-published it. Yeah, our yeah. family has that book with a lot of pictures in it, which is really special. But, um, and one year my mom gave a bunch of us a, a copy of it, so I think all of us have a copy. Um, I or, think so. I think. But anyway. Yeah. So, um... Obviously, that's what we use to read the book. However, it's not in print. So instead of trying to scramble and, like, get the PDF or figure that out, like, try to print it, you know, all that, we just decided that we would read it to you with our mom's permission so that um, we could just say, hey, if you want to listen to it, go listen to the podcast. So after this little uh, talk that we're doing, we are going to... Um, allow our listeners to listen to the book being read by Laura, actually. Yep. So um, so for for those of you who want to kind of understand where we're going this week, as, as Becky said, we um, this is just a short intro to introduce what we're doing here for the next few podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you will hear my mom's book. Then the following Tuesday, we will put out the first half of the interviews that we did with my parents 
And then the following week, when we would normally drop another podcast, it will be the second half of those interviews. Mm -hmm. And then we'll be back to our regular schedule of every every other Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So for this time, you get kind of an extra podcast Mm -hmm. next week, um, which will be the first half Mm -hmm. of the interviews. Yeah. So, um, so yes. So that is what you will hear very shortly here. And without further ado, I give you Andy's home now. Enjoy. Andy's Home Now by Beverly D. Price. Copyright 1980. All rights reserved. Narrated by Laura Archambault. Chapter 1. Our Little Andy. With three little girls as his forerunners into our family, Andy's arrival was quite a surprise. Many friends and acquaintances assumed that we had been longing to have a little boy. We soon tired of hearing, Oh, you finally got your boy! As if the first three tries had been failures. The truth of the matter was, we weren't sure that we wanted a boy at all. We were enjoying the girls so much, and we had observed many parents tearing their hair out with the antics of their longed-for little boys. Not only was his gender a bit unusual for us, but the way he made his appearance into our world was also out of the ordinary. My total labor time was only one hour and ten minutes. He entered life a short ten minutes after we arrived at the hospital. There was not time for the normal preparations. He just came. Carl came rushing into the delivery room just in time to get a ringside seat. Nothing was sterile, so he was permitted to stand by the resident as he suctioned the baby's mouth and then proceeded to catch the rest of our baby boy. I can remember having such a warm, peaceful feeling, an experience that every new mother can relate to. Our baby was here. It was a boy. I was starting to like that idea, and I hadn't even worked up a sweat. While we waited there in the delivery room for my doctor to come to the hospital to check me and perform the circumcision on Andy, we three had a very special time of getting acquainted. In spite of our apprehensions, it took only a few minutes of cuddling and bonding to know that the arrival of this little baby boy was going to prove to be a very special event in our lives. It's a precious memory that I will always treasure. Back to the real world of dirty diapers, 2 a.m. feedings, and last but not least, colic. Wonderful. I was relatively used to diapers and sleepless nights, but no one had warned me about colic. I was finding that there was an immense difference between loving a baby and liking him. The colic medicine rarely helped, and even holding him constantly didn't seem to alleviate his problem. The endless crying was changing me into a person that I didn't like. Many times I was afraid of some of the solutions I thought of to try to stop his crying. Very few people, friends or family, knew what was happening inside of me. I didn't realize it then, but my feelings were not that abnormal for the mother of a colicky baby. But at the time, I felt all alone and very guilty. I can remember one day he had woke up from one of his 20-minute naps. He was famous for them. And he was crying in his bed. I didn't go in to pick him up because I was afraid I might hurt him. 
I thought I was going to go crazy if I had to listen to that little voice one minute longer. Fortunately, the doorbell rang, and I had to force myself to respond to the situation. Who knows? We may have laid there for days trying to outcry each other. Andy was a pretty baby. At first, I thought maybe that was just our opinion. Parents don't always see their children as other people do. But people began telling us what an attractive baby he was, and so we decided to believe them. Sometimes it made me upset to have them say he was pretty. I just wanted him to be a good baby. Who cares about pretty? His colic lasted longer than the normal three months. He was six and a half months before his behavior started to resemble that of a normal baby. The change in behavior coincided with his being able to sit up, crawl, and enjoy a few toys, which led Dr. Miller to believe that much of the colic symptoms were not colic at all, but merely signs of boredom. He felt that Andy was showing frustration because his body couldn't keep up with his mind. I didn't care what the reason was. I was just glad to have some resemblance of peace return to our home. The confusion and fuss over Andy had taken its toll on all of us. How can one little body cause such havoc? Anyway, we were all starting to enjoy him more, and I was even starting to like him. We saw another big improvement in his behavior when he began walking at about a year. We were starting to believe that Dr. Miller's boredom theory may have been correct. Even after his year birthday, Andy still had times when he just wasn't pleased with his environment, and he made life miserable for all of us. But those times were few and far between. It was very difficult for other people to get to know Andy. He was very withdrawn with everyone except his immediate family. He didn't even make up to my parents. That was hard for us to handle because he was finally becoming a neat little person and we wanted to share that with them. I was amazed at how adept he was at changing his personality as they drove out of our driveway. Many times I found myself almost apologizing for his distant reaction to friendly people, but realized that was wrong, and that we all would just have to accept and love him the way he was. Chapter 2. The Dream The rough waters of our storm-struck daily life seemed to be calming down. We were approaching Christmas, but the big event would be Andy's first birthday in January. We were nearly through his first year of life, and we were still here to tell about it. In December, we started making plans for a vacation trip to Florida to visit our parents. But our plans were a bit overshadowed by our hurried decision to put our house up for sale before we left. We couldn't believe it was happening. The big old farmhouse we had always wanted was within our reach. The dream was coming true. Our first encounter with our dream home had come nearly eight years before. A friend of Carl's from work had invited us to go out with him and his wife, and then to their home for dessert later. The evening did not go as planned. The theater was packed, so we had to give up our plans for seeing the documentary on Alaska. Oh well, all was not lost. There was still the dessert. And the fellowship, of course. The roads had become snow-covered while we were waiting in the theater. About a half hour later, we found ourselves waiting at a service station for a tow truck to come pick us up so that we could go and pull our car out of the ditch. We had hit a sheet of ice, 
turned a complete circle in the middle of the road and slipped into the ditch. It could have been worse if there had been oncoming cars or a deeper ditch. I tried to keep my mind on the waiting dessert, but wondered what other calamities awaited us in the remaining hours of this wonderful evening out. We found our friend's house. I couldn't believe these people really used this driveway. There was a cement bridge with no sides on it and a five-foot drop into a creek below. It was snow-covered. It normally might not have bothered me, but I was still a little shaky from our recent trip to the ditch. I thought about getting out and walking up the driveway, but Carl did not slow down. I closed my eyes. Phew! No splash. It was dark, and the house didn't really catch my attention. The cherry pie sitting on the kitchen counter did. My memories of my first impression of the house are a bit blurred, mainly because most of my thoughts were wishes. I was wishing we had a home of our own, and that I knew how to make cherry pie. I do remember there were some guinea pigs in the kitchen, and I thought that was curious. It doesn't seem strange at all, now that we have five children in the house. We walked through a formal dining room into a large living room that had an open stairway. The house was comfortable and homey. That's all. My wishes took over. The disaster-filled evening ended in getting stuck in their driveway. What else? It must have been an omen. We've got a thing about getting stuck in that driveway. We came to the house one more time after that to get some corn for our freezer. It was summer, and this time the outside of the house and the property impressed me, and would have been more impressive if we hadn't backed into their newly planted grass. I think the border of white stones was messed up too. Wonderful. We didn't see the house again until the summer of 1977, seven years and four babies later. We had our own home by now, but it was in town and was getting a bit small for us. Carl's friend from work had sold his home to the consumer's power company. The power company was going to put a high-powered electrical line up near the Smith's home and had bought the entire property from the Smith's because they didn't want to live near the towers and didn't want to be left with only two acres. We decided to take a drive and refresh our memory. It was just as beautiful as we had remembered. It isn't the type of home that appeals to everyone, but it was exactly what Carl wanted, and I felt I could easily live there, provided we could have a tow truck on call 24 hours a day. When we drove by, the Smiths were having a picnic with friends. People were lounging in lawn chairs, kids were playing ball in the yard, and smaller children were swinging and playing in the grass. It was such a warm, cozy family scene. The property was at the height of its green summer beauty. The small creek running across the front of the property was the most outstanding feature. We decided then that we wanted this home to be ours, but the desire to be where God wanted us to be took precedence. We left our longings with him. Vacation and Christmas plans combined can be very hectic when there are four children to care for. Add the responsibilities of preparing a house for prospective buyers to examine to all the other duties, and you come up with one frustrated mama. We had put in a bid on the farmhouse, and Consumers Power had accepted the offer. We were getting a good deal. They were taking a bit of a loss, but were anxious to have the deal settled. Now we just had the small matter of selling our house. The timing was perfect. 
the house would stay clean for house shoppers, since we would be gone for two weeks on vacation. I was wondering how I was going to keep it clean all the time with four pairs of dirty hands working against me. We left for Florida on Saturday and had a buyer on the following Tuesday. Unbelievable. We felt the Lord's hand in all that was happening, but it was all coming at us so fast that it made our heads spin. I'm not great at adjusting to new situations. It was especially hard for me. I can remember saying yes to the offer that was made to us over the telephone, but my heart was saying, wait, this is all moving too fast for me to deal with. But I knew it was what I wanted, and we were absolutely sure this was God's plan for our lives. Chapter 3, 45 Minutes, and Eternity Andy was crying again, and I just didn't have the time to hold him. Why does he have to choose the busiest and most inconvenient times to be so fussy? Andy, our little Andy, so perfect in every way physically, but so very temperamental. I had to get ready to go to the doctor's office. You must not be fussy now. Stop it. Stop that crying. I left on time, and my fourth month prenatal checkup was uneventful. We were expecting our fifth child. Unplanned, but not unwanted. Andy was also unplanned, and for about two weeks I had real problems trying to accept that pregnancy. I felt a bit smug spiritually. I had easily accepted this pregnancy as God's plan for our lives. I didn't realize God had much more for me to learn about accepting his plans. Carl had decided to stay home that day to spend time on splitting wood for our furnace. While I was gone, he would be watching our kindergartner, Melissa, our three-year-old, Krista, and Andy, who was then 20 months. Was it only six months ago that God had led us to this home? The country atmosphere, the home, and the property were proving to be all that we had expected. We were enjoying the large living area, five bedrooms, and extra storage space. The house seemed to just fit our needs. Along with all of the advantages of the home itself, we were thoroughly enjoying the two acres for the children to play on and many acres of farmland surrounding the property. We watched the changing scenery of our find go from the one-foot coverage of snow to the lush green of summer and now, as we watched the autumn colors break forth, we were reminded once again that we were exactly where God wanted us to be, and we praised him for his goodness to us. As I turned onto our road on the return trip from the doctor's office, I met Melissa's kindergarten bus. Carl had successfully sent her off to school. I drove into the driveway. The chain of events starts. Carl was trying to encourage Andy to come back from the creek. They had been waiting with Melissa for her bus, and now that it was time to come in for lunch, Andy was angry. He wanted to skip stones with Daddy. The last picture in my mind of our precious boy was one that was not abnormal for his short 20 months. He was crying, walking up to the house, but really putting up a fuss about it. Before I got to the house, I noticed in my rearview mirror that the Avon lady was driving in behind me. Great. I probably owe her some money. We, 
Krista, the Avon lady, and I went into the house to talk about the weighty problems of which color of lipstick was best for me and how much I owed her for my last order. Carl had gone out to work on cutting wood in the backyard. After about 25 minutes of Avon talk, my friend left. I wandered outside with Krista to see what the men were doing. Where's Andy? He went into the house with you, didn't he? Had I missed seeing him walk through the dining room? From this point on, it's a bit hard to relate in exact sequence just what happened. We started calling Andy, calmly at first, and then frantically. It was as if his name was echoing off every wall of every building on our property. I ran back in the house yelling his name. I checked all the rooms and every closet. I ran down to the road, checking the creek as I crossed the bridge. By now, I was sure something ominous was happening. My mind was racing over the things that might have happened to him. Did he wander down the road? We might have to call the police. I'd be embarrassed about all the commotion, but they can help us find him. He couldn't have been hit by a car. That would never happen to us. Over the bridge again. A quick look down the creek both ways. No, he couldn't be in the creek. I'd see him. Where is he? Back to the house. I now hear Carl yelling Andy's name. His voice sounds strange. He's running to look in the creek now. I run to the side of the house to look under the bushes. As I bend over to part the bushes, I hear a sickening noise come from the very depths of Carl's being. I hear the splash of water and look up to see Carl rushing into the water to pick up the lifeless little form. He carries our baby to the bank and starts to work on him. Someone is screaming over and over. She continues to scream. Is this really happening? Who's screaming? I know I must get to them, and then I realize I am already running toward the creek. Stop that screaming! I can't think! Carl's eyes meet mine. He's so far away. Is that a look of desperation? A pleading look? I've never seen that expression on his face before or since. Why am I running to them? I must get to the phone. Stop screaming! Dial zero. The screaming stops. Operator, please help us. Our little boy. Drown. Hurry! Oh God, please hurry! I hurriedly give her our address. Now I can run. Thank God that screaming has stopped. Carl is still working on that silent little form. Oh, Carl, your baby boy. Why? Oh, honey, he's gone. It's been too long. Leave him alone. He's gone. Chapter 4. Gone, but where? From the time I saw his face and eyes, I knew he was gone. The eyes. They were neither open nor shut. I knew he was somewhere between here and heaven. Carl would not give up. He continued to give him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, but there was no response. His body was lifeless. I worked on Andy for a while, but I knew it was useless. We didn't know that we were doing the mouth-to-mouth -mouth improperly at the time. 
but it came back to haunt me later. When the policeman arrived, he started working on Andy and told Carl to bring me back up to the house. I found that I resented his sending me away. I wasn't being hysterical. The only reason I could see for this subtle request was that he, too, must have thought Andy was dead. It only reaffirmed my first impression. I took Krista's hand and slowly walked toward the house. Krista? Where had she come from? Where had she been? I could not, through the whole search, remember seeing her one time. She may have been following Carl around. She later told her Sunday school teacher, My daddy ran right in the creek with his shoes on. She must have seen Carl bring Andy out. I picked her up and hugged her. Would this ugly scene leave her with scars for life? No. God would work in her mind just as he was beginning to work in my aching heart. Our neighbor, Hope Feltman, had heard the police siren and came running. She was now helping the policeman. Hope is a registered nurse and knew exactly what to do. Carl came rushing up to the house, and we stood in our kitchen and prayed and cried. Already, God was surrounding us with his warm blanket of peace that passes all understanding. We told him we were willing to give Andy back. We know all of our children are only a generous loan from him. The next move we made would prove to be very important to us as we progressed through the next few days and weeks. We asked him to remove all guilt and blame that might come as a result of the happenings of the past hour. He took all that guilt completely away, and we grabbed onto the hope that God has a plan for our lives, and he doesn't make mistakes. Through our whole grief process, we were never hounded by guilt or blame. There were certainly times when I wished things would have been different, but the guilt was just not there. Many people who lose loved ones not only have the loss to deal with, but the heaviness of guilt also has to be dealt with and worked through. There were those who wondered about our feelings of guilt and later asked our pastor about us. Pastor Jones told them we weren't having a problem with that, and I don't think they could quite understand or accept his answer. We were drawing a crowd. The man driving the tractor in the field, the police, hope, ambulance attendants, and a stranger. We didn't figure out until later that he was a reporter. I wasn't aware of the fact that he was filming parts of our nightmare. He was in the background and never asked us any questions. Andy was on the six o'clock news that evening. I sat on the porch rocking Krista back and forth and holding her as tightly as I could. I needed to feel the warmth of a child's body. Andy's gone to be with Jesus. I repeated it over and over. Now, when we ask her what she remembers of Andy's drowning, she tells about rocking on the porch with Mom and talking about Andy being with Jesus. God allowed her to remember only the good and secure feelings she had throughout the ordeal. God performed numerous, many miracles, as we called them. Krista's memory loss, the absence of guilty feelings, and his blanket of peace were the first of many. Hope came up to the house. They had found a slight heartbeat. 
in a way, I felt kind of sad inside to think that maybe they had snatched him away just as he was about to enter the arms of Jesus. I didn't know whether to feel good or bad about that. They had resuscitated him, but in my mind, he was still dead. It had been too long. We will never know exactly how long he was in the water. It could have been up to 45 minutes. Surely there would be brain damage. At this point, I was not ready to accept him as anything but our perfect little boy. I'm pregnant, Lord. I can't take care of a special needs child and a new baby, too. It would be easier to give him back to the Lord. I felt selfish and more than a little sad about my feelings. Hope was excited about the heartbeat. Why was I being so pessimistic? We went down to the creek. They were getting ready to take him to the hospital. They had been here so long, it seemed, and he still looked the same to me. Where is he? That is not our Andy. Carl and I sat by the creek and prayed again. I can't remember what we talked to the Lord about, but we felt very close to him and to each other. We didn't care who saw us hugging and praying. The policeman came to us and told us to keep our faith. There was still hope. Krista had very happily gone with hope. She was going to make some calls for us and keep the kids after school. They all ended up staying overnight there. This was the first of many tangible ways our friends showed us their love. I will never again see an ambulance without wondering how many lives are involved or hurting. I rode in the ambulance, and Carl drove the car to the hospital. It was horrible. I could hear every beat of Andy's heart, and with each beat, I wondered if it would be his last. The machine continued to beat. I was crying. I could see the attendant watching me, probably wondering if I'd be his next patient. Nobody would get out of our way. It seemed everyone was in a conspiracy to slow us down. Didn't they care? My baby boy was dying. Chapter 5. Emergency. We sat in someone's office. Were they giving us special treatment because he had died? They put me in a reclining chair, but I didn't want to lie down. I didn't even want to sit. Carol and Larry Postma, good friends of ours, had come to sit, wait, and cry with us. They didn't have to tell us how they felt. Their tears told it all. Others came and went. Our pastor couldn't be found because it was his day off, but it didn't matter. We felt the love of those who were there. They had laid aside the schedule of their day and came to be with us. It was in this room that we had our first encounter with Dr. Galvin, the resident pediatrician. He had a kind face and was from the beginning very sensitive and caring with us. But he seemed a bit pessimistic about Andy's condition in the light of all the grim facts. He continued this subtle pessimism throughout Andy's hospital stay. The questioning about Andy's time in the water started. When did you last see him? When did you notice him missing? You didn't see him for a half hour? The police had asked us the same questions, but the absence of guilt was still there. I do not know how long we were in that office, maybe a couple of hours. 
It was mainly a time of denial for me. Soon this nightmare would be over and we would be taking Andy home. I was not as despondent about his life now that I couldn't see him. Very capable, knowledgeable people were caring for him. But I did wonder about brain damage. I can remember worrying about Carl having to live with the memory of finding Andy floating face down in the water. I had checked the creek at least two times in my search for him. I could see God's wisdom in not letting me find him. I felt I could not have handled that gruesome detail in my already expanding network of ugly memories. God, how can he handle that? I asked my friend Carol to pray about his being able to cope with that. Little did I realize that this was one of many things Carl would be able to handle, not on his own, but because of his deep conviction that God is in complete control of our lives and because of his ever-present focus on the future. Carl has a special way of looking at things that happen to us in the light of eternity. Of course, he was hurting, but he wasn't questioning God's plan. His spiritual depth was starting to show. I praise God for Carl's loyalty and trust in our all-wise God. Chapter 6 Our Baby Forever We slowly walked into his room in the intensive care unit. The beep was still there, along with the rushing air sound of the respirator, a sound that would become familiar to us over the next three days. He still looked the same to me, the eyes, neither open nor shut. But something was changed. Me. I hadn't seen him for a couple of hours, and many feelings came rushing over me as I stood over his bed and watched him. The most immediate reaction was my mother instinct. It started bubbling up from somewhere deep within me. Yes, Lord, I can take care of him. Even if he's this way for the rest of his life, I'm willing. How I was going to do that was beyond my comprehension right then, but I knew God's grace was sufficient to see me through whatever was ahead. Along with that part of me that was ready to mother him was the other part of me that knew he had been so very near to life with Jesus. Why did we bring him back? Wasn't life with Jesus better than life as an invalid? At the time of this writing, three years after Andy's death, I still believe the Andy that we knew and loved was gone when Carl pulled him out of the creek. Many people were praying for his healing, but we never asked the Lord specifically for his healing. We were in no position to manipulate God. No one is. We can let him know our desires, and we can bring him our requests, but in the end, the plan is his. We wanted his perfect will. Of course, we would have liked for Andy to be healed, and we told God that. But we couldn't bring ourselves to plead with him for Andy's perfect health or his life. We may have been criticized for our feelings on this. I told my sister on the phone that we would welcome their prayers for his healing, but that we couldn't ask for it. The enormity of his critical condition was thrown in our faces every time we looked at his lifeless little body. We were face to face with the seriousness of the situation with every breath he took. I guess I felt our perspective was not objective. We had been told to try and communicate with Andy. He was in a coma, 
but it was very possible that he could hear us and might respond. At first, it was very difficult and awkward to talk to him. Soon, we were doing so with ease, but we were becoming a bit tense and needed a change. Pastor Jones and Pat, his wife, came to sit with us around supper time that first night. We welcomed the diversion. We decided to go across the street to get a sandwich. It seemed so refreshing to get outside. The air was brisk, but it felt good. As we sat and ate, we talked, shared, and even laughed together. At one point, the strangeness of being able to laugh hit me like a bullet. At first, I felt guilt. My baby is lying over there in the ICU, maybe dying. Why am I here? How can I be laughing? I quickly realized that Satan was trying to get a foothold and recognized our joy as a gift from God. I never again felt guilt about being able to express joy. But every time it happened, I was a little surprised and wondered what others were thinking. We found out later that we were criticized for our frequent expressions of joy, and one person went so far as to make the statement, you'd have to look hard to find the grieving family around here. We tried to ignore that type of attitude, and soon I was claiming Nehemiah 8.10. We were stronger when we were given that supernatural joy. Back to our vigil. There had been no change while we were out for supper. We decided to spend the night on the couches in the waiting room, since the other children were being well cared for. We wanted to be there in case he woke up. We were told that the first 24 hours were very crucial. With every hour, the prognosis got worse. We spent a fitful night on the couches, and I woke up early with a heavy feeling in my chest and couldn't go back to sleep. I knew by the thumps and bumps through the night that the little person inside of me was fine. Many were worried about him, but I was sure there was no problem. Nurses were scurrying here and there. They had been very kind to us, loaning us pillows and giving us toothbrushes. One nurse mentioned that we should not forget our other children. They were probably going through some anguish of their own, wondering why we were not with them. I cannot remember a lot about Tuesday at the hospital. I was very tired and emotionally exhausted. We were hovering over Andy, watching for any change or signs of improvement. There was a bruise on his forehead that had not been there the day before, which led us to believe that he had bumped his head on a rock when he fell in the water. That would explain his not being able to get up out of the water. The creek was only about six to eight inches deep at that time of the year. It eased my mind some to think that he'd maybe been knocked unconscious instead of going through the frightening feeling of drowning. He had developed pneumonia on Monday, but by Tuesday afternoon, it was clearing up. We were excited about that progress. We saw the first trembling movements of his fingers on Tuesday. We were thrilled. We needed to see something after 24 hours of waiting and hovering. But Dr. Galvin said this could be a very bad sign, that it was probably only involuntary movements caused by brain damage. We told him it didn't matter what it meant, but that our hearts and emotions needed the lift of seeing him move. I don't think he understood us and was starting to wonder what kind of people we were. He never really offered his pessimistic opinions. We asked many questions, 
and he told us the facts as he saw them. He was very honest with us, and we appreciated that and told him so. Chapter 7. Don't Forget the Girls We started thinking more about the girls. They needed us right now just as much as Andy did, if not more. They had gone 24 hours without knowing all the facts. Were they hurting? What questions had they been afraid to ask? We decided to pick them up, go home, and have a quiet family time and explain what was happening with Andy and how ill he was. We tried. We drove in over the bridge. I swallowed hard and tried not to look at the creek. His baby shoes were still on the porch. I had to lay aside the pain I was feeling at the sight of them, because as we pulled up to the house, some very caring relatives drove in behind us. We knew they were very concerned, but my hopes for a quiet time with the girls fell. Carol Postma had sent supper home with us. I knew there wouldn't be enough to feed all of us, but we started preparing the table for supper in between answering questions from the girls. This wasn't how I had it planned, Lord. The phone kept ringing with long-distance calls from my sister and our parents. I was glad for the excuse not to eat. My stomach was churning. As it turned out, there was plenty of food. No one felt like eating. After the things were cleared away and we were sitting in the living room, we had a strange visitor knock on our door. He told me who he was and how sorry he was to hear about our child. Was there anything he could do to help? His church could bring in meals. The cat kept attacking his leg. I was very curious as to why he was doing that. He'd never acted that way before. Later, when we found out the man's motives, I wished the cat had bit him. He was the local funeral director. One who was later found guilty of pocketing money designated for burial of babies and instead burying them in styrofoam coolers. The relatives left and the phone stopped ringing. It was getting late for a school night bedtime, but we knew we had to have a private time with the girls. We sat down to answer their questions and talk about their fears. Trisha, our seven-year-old, did most of the questioning. She felt free to share her hurts. Melissa surprised us. She was five and old enough to understand some of this, but she didn't really share much with us. I decided during that talk that the girls needed a fun day. Trisha had felt some pressure from other children, especially one little girl on the bus. She told her over and over, Your brother drowned, didn't he? Trisha didn't know much more than the little girl because we hadn't been with her to tell her the whole story. She didn't know how to handle the situation, and it was a very traumatic thing for her to go through. I was angry. I wanted to protect them from every hurt. We made the decision to take them to a good friend and former neighbor on Wednesday. Nancy Tidy is a fun-loving, sensitive person who always made our girls feel like very special little people. The girls were thrilled. Trisha's teacher didn't understand. I was very firm with her because I felt very strongly that I was right about this. Missing one day of school would not hurt her. I know my child better than anyone else, and I felt she needed something fun for a few hours. Bedtime was very difficult, 
Trisha was hurting. She felt an incomplete family feeling that was very easy for me to relate to. I felt it too. She didn't want to go to sleep. Andy's crib was empty, and that was causing her some real pain. We cried, hugged, and prayed together. Already this experience was drawing us closer together as a family. The crying helped cleanse some of the hurt, but I was still sure we'd made the right decision about keeping the girls home from school. The needs and feelings of our daughters were much more important than what others thought. We would only make it through this if we followed our own feelings about how God would have us deal with different situations that would arise. Chapter 8. Love Lifts We slept soundly Tuesday night. Once again, I awoke with that heavy feeling in my chest. Something's wrong. My baby. Is he still alive? There was no call in the night. That was a good sign. We prepared to go our separate ways. Carl to work, me to the hospital. Larry Postma had made arrangements with a local car dealer for us to have an extra car. We appreciated his effort and the car dealer's generosity. It would make things much easier. I took the girls to Nancy Tidy's and went on to the hospital. No change. Wait, yes. The eyes were closed. I mentioned this to the nurse, and she said they had closed them for him. That was hard for me to handle. Only people who have died need to have their eyes closed for them. His pupils were still responding, but everything looked so bleak to me this morning. He just didn't look good. He was still having the tremors off and on, but the movements weren't exciting me anymore. That's not my Andy. My perfect baby boy. I had brought a recent family picture to the hospital with me and taped it to the head of his bed, right under the huge black box that monitored his vital signs. I cried. Will our family ever be the same? I wanted the nurses to see what a pretty baby he had been. There was something different about him. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I later realized that he was starting to retain water. He looked bloated. They were all duly impressed with the picture of him. I needed their compliments. I had also brought his well-worn pacifier with me. We had weaned him from it only a few days earlier, and I thought if I talked to him about it, maybe I would get some sign of a response. I tried, but got no reaction from him. I was still crying when the nurse came in. She put her armor on me. She was older than most of the nurses who were working with Andy. Nothing looks very good this morning. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry, honey. Let it out. Did anyone tell you yet about the little girl who came in just like Andy? She's fine now. She only drags one foot a little bit. We called her a walking miracle. I melted into the circle of her arms. It felt so good to be mothered. I was tired of being the mother. I wanted a fun day. I loved her for trying to encourage me, but something she'd said had hurt. The foot dragging. Our perfect Andy. I know, Lord, I told you that I'd care for him. Why do I bristle at the thought of a dragging foot? I don't feel that will happen. I'm not trying to dictate my plans to you, Lord, but that just doesn't seem right. 
Thy will be done. I laid the thought prayer aside and basked in the warmth of God's comfort that I was feeling through this woman. Many times as I bent over Andy's bed, I felt a dizziness come over me. It was probably because of poor circulation. That often happens to me when I'm pregnant. If I would sit down for a few minutes, I was fine. The dizziness was coming, so I decided to go out to the waiting room for a few minutes. A close friend, Diane Moore, came. I was thankful for her company and soon found myself expressing that unexplainable joy. I could feel the blanket of peace surrounding me again. We were able to share, weep, and laugh together. There was a woman across the room who I had noticed had been hanging on our every word. She soon moved into the chair right next to mine. She kept breaking into our conversation. I was a bit annoyed with her. She wanted to know if we had a child here. Yes, our child nearly drowned and is in a coma. Oh, you're the one! I turned back to Diane and tried to continue our conversation. How did it happen? I could take it no more. I was angry. I'd rather not talk about that with you. What had happened? I had been experiencing God's peace and inner joy. Why had I suddenly snapped at a total stranger? She left us, but I felt a sense of guilt and a bit sad after that encounter. I knew she merely wanted to hear all of the morbid details, and that was her problem. But I was responsible for my reaction. We didn't talk much about the incident, but the feelings of guilt and sadness stayed with me throughout most of the day. I could have used the opportunity to witness of God's grace and peace, but instead I had expressed anger. I realized later that I was merely expressing some of the anger that normally comes as one of the stages of grief. As Diane and I sat there and visited, the elevator door opened, and Dr. Miller, our pediatrician, came rushing through the waiting room. He seemed rather distant. That was unusual for him because normally he's so jovial. I followed him into ICU and he was examining Andy as I walked in. Again, the distant reaction. I realized then that he didn't know what to say to me or how I was handling this whole thing. I don't remember exactly what I said to make him feel comfortable, but very soon we were conversing about the drowning and Andy's condition with ease. Soon, I was feeling better about Andy's condition, just because Dr. Miller was so supportive and caring. He wasn't sure about the trembling. Maybe the picture wasn't as bad as Dr. Galvin had painted it. He couldn't be certain. I will never know if Dr. Miller was only trying to give me a ray of hope, or if he really believed what he was saying, but my emotions were on the upswing. I felt good about having him on the scene. For some reason, my whole attitude changed for the positive after seeing and sharing some of my thoughts and feelings with him. I know now that God was giving me a special surge of peace and strength to fall back on in the next few days. The rest of the hours at the hospital were profitable in my strengthening process. I was surrounded by friends, and two of my cousins came to share and be with me. They felt it was time for me to have some family to touch, and they were right. All of my family is out of state, and phone calls cannot replace a hug. We had good fellowship, and my heart was much lighter as I drove to pick up the girls. Chapter 9. Oppressed. Nancy had not failed me. 
The girls were bubbling over with stories to tell of things they had done and special art projects they had worked on. Before I left the old neighborhood, I went to visit another former neighbor. It was from her that I learned about the newspaper article. She mentioned the article, and I asked if she still had it. It put me in a bad light. Carl was not mentioned in it at all. It sounded as though I had not known Andy's whereabouts for a half hour, when, in fact, I thought he was with Carl. There were also other facts that were distorted in the article. I wasn't angry about the article, only a bit heavy-hearted, but I knew that the truth and details would be found out by those who cared about us. One good thing to come from that article was my change in attitude when I see or hear a news report on the death of a child. My initial reaction used to be, where was that mother? I now no longer assume that all newspaper articles are factually true, or that all the important details are there. When we arrived home, the phone started ringing. Some friends had left a meal for us, another special act of love. There was a phonograph record in between the two doors with a strange note attached to it. We didn't keep the note because after Carl read it, he told me to burn it. It's hard for me to explain the air or feeling of that letter. The writer rambled on about being able to understand our feelings but he talked as though Andy was already dead. It gave us a sick, eerie feeling. The letterhead wasn't noticed until after we'd read the note. It was the name of the funeral director that the cat had used for a scratching post the night before. It made me almost physically ill to think about what this man was suggesting in a very subtle way. I started putting the story together, and I became angry. The cat seemed to sense more than we did about this insensitive man. He was the same man who had come to our door the night before. How dare he offer us his help, meals, and free record. He only wanted our baby's body. I wanted to tell everyone I knew about this man and his unethical tactics. We let it drop. We knew the feelings we were having could only harm our relationship with Christ, and we needed to be in the center of his will right now. Strange people seemed to be coming out of the woodwork. The inquisitive woman at the hospital, and now this man. But with God's help, we would be able to deal with intrusive people and the pain they might cause our family. Chapter 10. In the Arms of Jesus We awoke Thursday morning very early. We decided to send Trisha back to school and leave the other girls with a neighbor. As we prepared to leave, we both felt a lighter feeling than we had on the two previous mornings. We couldn't put it into words, but we felt that something good was going to happen today. We were encouraged by Dr. Miller's examination of Andy, and we could feel, even stronger than before, God's peace and love. This morning, we knew that he was in control of our lives. Through this whole time, God's people had been praying for us, and God was allowing us to feel that support. Not just our church friends were praying, but because of our family being out of state, there were many congregations in Michigan, Florida, Indiana, and Oklahoma supporting us in prayer. It would be a good day. I arrived at the hospital around 8 o'clock a.m. engulfed with optimistic feelings. As I came through the double-swinging doors to the ICU, a nurse came rushing up to me before I entered Andy's room. Andy's had a bad night. His pupils became fixed in the night, and we gave him medication. He responded to it, 
but he's not doing too well this morning. I didn't answer her. I looked into his room, and the curtains around his bed were closed. There were about three or four people working on him. I must have only stood there about ten seconds. It seemed like an eternity. She offered me a chair. I was suddenly very ill. I excused myself and rushed to the restroom. My body was denying the thought of Andy dying. This can't be happening. Why were we allowed to have such optimistic feelings this morning? Did God know we needed fortification for what was ahead of us? I returned to the ICU. They were watching me. I quickly called Carl at work and then went to sit down. That's what they wanted me to do. I didn't want to cause problems and make it harder for them to work on Andy, but inside, I was falling apart. I wanted to break the glass that was separating me from my dying baby. They thought I needed someone with me, but I wished that they would leave me alone to cry. Where is Carl? I need him. I remember telling Dr. Galvin I was sorry for crying. I'm not crying for Andy. I'm crying for me. I don't want him to leave. Go ahead and cry. Would you like to see him now? No. Yes. Where is Carl? I didn't want to watch him die, but I wanted to be with him. I'd just have to do this alone. I walked into the room and parted the curtain. I looked up at the black box. The vital signs were terrible. He was almost gone. Hi, honey. Can you hear me? Mommy loves you. He was so bloated that it was almost like that baby lying there wasn't really mine. Another form of denial. Oh, God. You watched your son die. You know what I'm feeling. Show me how to get through this. Carl came in just then, checked his vital signs, and looked at me questioningly. I hadn't told him on the phone how bad the situation was. I'd only told him to come quickly. We're losing him, honey. What happened? He couldn't believe it either. It was only an hour ago that we both felt that something good was going to happen today. It was. Our son would soon be with Jesus. Dr. Miller came into the room and found us hugging and crying. I reached out to him and we embraced. He asked us if we'd like them to take the tubes out and the IV off. They were useless at this point and it only made it harder for us to be close to him. We left the room so that they could perform this last small service for him. When they came to get us, they said he'd passed away while they were working on him. Andy was in the arms of Jesus. Did we want to see and hold him one last time? Chapter 11 Sunshine We parted the curtains. The sun was shining through the window. I didn't want it to be shining. The noise from the respirator was gone. The tubes and IV were gone. Lying there on the sheet was the body of our baby boy, our precious baby boy, now perfect in every way. Say hello to Jesus for us, Andy. 
We love you, Carl said between the tears. Once again, tears and our love for each other was all we could express. No words were appropriate. I had no desire to hold him. I touched his little hand and then reached up to take the picture of our family off the bed. I kissed his forehead, and as I walked past the table at the end of his bed, I picked up his pacifier. I cried. It was so important to us two weeks ago to take it away from him. I knew then that there would be many things that I would have done differently had we only known we would lose him. His death was going to help me reassess my priorities. As we stepped out into the hall, I mentioned to one of the nurses, Jesus just got a really neat little boy. The sun was truly shining, and the light and warmth from the sun would help us through the coming dark days. Chapter 12. Oh, how it hurts. The pain. How can I put it into words? It felt like I was being physically crushed in an invisible vice. I could not believe that people survived this. It would almost be easier to die than to go through this crushing pain. I knew the death of a loved one was supposed to hurt emotionally, but I was unprepared for feeling actual physical pain. I can remember coming home from church one Sunday morning about two weeks after Andy's death, and my arms literally ached to hold my baby. There was a very deep, dull ache in them. I have very seldom seen Carl cry. It's not that he's an insensitive person. He just doesn't express his pain with tears. But this pain was too much. I came up behind him as he stood looking out the dining room door the day Andy died. The tears were flowing freely. The tricycle and doll stroller were there on the porch. He shared with me what was bothering him. Everywhere he looked, there were cruel reminders of Andy. He was remembering a little game the kids played. They hooked the stroller to the tricycle and rode around in circles on the porch with Andy in the stroller. He would giggle and squeal for Daddy to come watch. The toys sat empty and still. The pain was unbearable. His shoes had to be polished. There was no one to do it but me. They looked bad because they had become soaked in the creek and left to dry on the porch. I had asked Carl to get them out of my sight that first night we came home. He had taken them up to Andy's room so I wouldn't have to look at them. Now I had to do more than just look at them. I had to handle them and clean them. I wasn't sure I could do it. I had to try. As I polished, I cried. This was the last mothering, physical, caring service I would ever perform for Andy. As I polished, the dreaded chore became an act of love. I thanked God for this last way of expressing my love. Chapter 13 Part of the Family Andy's three-day fight for life had been a time of preparation for us. God had given us some time to adjust to the idea of possibly losing our baby. It was those same three days that changed our baby's appearance. It's very normal for the body of a drowning victim to bloat. 
Andy's features were distorted, and we decided to have a closed casket. We gave our immediate family the choice of seeing him, but only my sister Carol chose to do so. The children didn't understand why they couldn't see him, but we wanted them to remember him as he was before the drowning. The little white casket looked so pretty with his picture sitting on it, the flowers from us, and the banner draped over it that read, Our Little Andy. There was significance in that statement for us. He really was ours, and belonged to no one else, since he didn't allow others to get to know him. I had one person tell me that she wasn't grieving for Andy because she didn't know him, but that she was grieving with us for our loss. My sister Marilyn and her family came from Indiana the same day Andy died. Just to have them in our home was comforting, and Jim's jovial spirit was a special blessing to us. We didn't want to have the aura of death in our home. We longed for the spirit of peace and inner joy to be felt by those who entered it. Jim's way of telling us he loved us was the joy he shared with us. God's gift of joy was evident as we went to meet two planes on Friday. My parents were coming from Florida, and my other sister, Carol, was coming from Oklahoma. Carol could see us from the plane as it landed, and she couldn't believe how we were acting up there on the lookout deck, waving and welcoming her. After the funeral, there were many relatives at our home. We started to open some cards that were given to us. The first two had money in them. I knew then that we were going to witness God's hand in supplying our financial needs. I asked everyone to sit down, and we enjoyed the cards and gifts together. We had bought insurance policies on the girls, but we had never gotten around to getting one on Andy. Only about a month before, I had mentioned to Carl that we should have the insurance man come. We soon realized that God had planned this for his glory. We had told John Strew, the funeral director, that we had no money, but not to worry, because we were God's children, and he would supply the money for the bill. And he did. We had the right amount of money come in, almost to the dollar. The unexplainable joy came to the fore again as we later sat around the piano and sang together as a family. There were some who were not singing, and I'm sure they couldn't understand how we could be expressing joy in that way. I didn't quite understand it myself, but knew that the joy was real, and that someday we'd be singing together around the throne of God, and the joy we were feeling then was only a taste of the joy we'll experience in the presence of our Lord. Chapter 14. Depression. We returned from the airport. My sister Carol, the last of the relatives to leave, was gone. She had stayed with us a week, and I dreaded having her leave. Carl had gone to work, and I was alone with my memories. I walked past Andy's high chair and noticed his little fingerprints on the picture above it. He was so alive such a short time ago. The girls were watching television, and I curled up on the love seat. I wished it would swallow me up. I was slowly sinking into a deep, painful depression. It was all I could do to tend to the needs of the girls. I soon found myself wandering aimlessly around the house, wondering if my life would always be this way. This was my first experience with the depression that is associated with grief. 
It was triggered by my loneliness and the sight of his little fingerprints. I was soon to find out that this depression would drop unexpectedly and heavily on me with no warning at all. Anything could cause this to happen. A little shoe found under the couch, the sight of an empty diaper pail, or the closed door of his room. One scene still stands out vividly in my mind. I was standing over the box of Christmas decorations with his Christmas stocking in my hand. I couldn't believe how fresh my grief felt, and it had been almost three months since his death. The waves of depression washed over me and took me unaware. I didn't want to hear that time heals, but when the Christmas stocking grief happened, I was surprised to realize that it had been a couple of days since I'd had that open wound grief. The intense times of pain and depression were coming fewer and farther apart. Chapter 15. Frustrations and Fears Family left. Friends' lives returned to normal. Our normal life was gone. In the beginning, we were thrown together by our pain. We clung together, chopped wood together, left the house together, and stayed home together. But as we progressed in our grief process, I didn't seem to be healing as quickly as Carl. I had more questions, more anger, and more depression. I can now understand how the death of a child can cause a family to lose their closeness. Because of Carl's patience, love, and wise counsel, we as a family were only drawn closer. I leaned heavily on his strength, but many times I couldn't understand it. I questioned God's wisdom in letting Andy die so young. Carl had no questions, only acceptance. He explained to me, if an elderly person dies suddenly, we don't question God's timing. Andy's death was no accident. It was God's time to take him home. Andy's ministry here on earth was finished in 20 short months. He tried to help me see that we need to continue in the work God has given us until he sees fit to take us home. No death is ever an accident. The divine pattern is being weaved, and God makes no mistakes in the weaving. I was angry. Why our baby? I remember going to Sears with a friend. There was a car in the parking lot with a small child in the back seat. The child was crying. I wanted to smash the windows and take that baby home with me. Was I capable of that? That mother didn't deserve to have that child. I'm a good mother. Why our baby? Carl was never angry. I had problems with the thought of Andy's body decaying. A frightening, morbid feeling came over me whenever I thought of it. I tried to stop my thoughts, but couldn't. I was afraid to share my feelings with anyone. When I finally told Carl what was tormenting me, he very wisely led me to the scriptures. Andy's body was only a shell, and someday he'll have a new body. The thing troubling me the most was the creek. I started closing the curtains so I wouldn't have to look at it. I didn't even want to see the bushes where I was standing the moment I heard that awful yell come from Carl. I could not keep the ugly scene from being reenacted in my mind. I can remember raking leaves one day, and I knew I could only go so far with my raking. I had drawn an imaginary line that I would not cross. 
I couldn't bear to get any closer to the spot where I had lost my baby. One Sunday afternoon, I awoke from a nap, and Carl and the children were down by the creek. I tried to go down there with them, and it was like pouring salt on an open wound. What is wrong with me? How can they be enjoying this water? It had snatched our baby away from us. I hated it. Walking over the bridge to get the mail became a monumental task. One day, I even thought I saw Andy's head floating in the water. Satan was having a ball with me. I wanted to move away from this property that was hurting me so badly, but I knew that running was not the answer. I began to ask God to heal my feelings about the creek. I wanted to enjoy it as I once had. God honored that request. By the next spring, I was once again enjoying the beauty of our property. Carl had no problems in his mind with the creek. Many times I wondered if I needed professional help. I had become afraid of the dark and didn't want Carl leaving me to go to church functions. He became a deacon a couple of months after Andy died and I hated having him leave me in the evenings. One night, I can remember going to bed after hearing a strange noise. I was so frightened I could feel my heart pounding in my throat. At that time, I turned my fears over to the Lord, and gradually, he healed them. I found maintaining an attitude of praise toward him was the thing he required of me before the healing of my fears could begin. Strange things happen to grieving people. I was no exception. One of Krista's dolls was showing much love and was very dirty from many trips outside with her. I tossed it into the washer with a load of clothes, and seeing that little doll body floating on top of the load of clothes was a frightening, more-than-I-could-handle experience. I slammed the lid of the washer shut and ran from the room, knowing it would take some time before I could put that scary picture from my mind. Another time I was alone when I heard Andy's clear little baby voice calling me, Mama! I looked around. Krista was upstairs. It could not have been her. This hallucination, I realized much later, was a form of denial. I didn't want to believe he was gone. Chapter 16 Let Me Grieve all of these strange thought patterns seemed very wrong to me. Carl was healing so well. I put in about five months of hard grieving time before I came across a book entitled Morning Song by Joyce Landorf. From her writings, I realized my grieving was not strange or wrong. There is no wrong way to grieve. There are certain things that most people go through in the death of a loved one. I was normal. What an encouraging thought. Just because I was not grieving in the same way that Carl was did not mean that I was abnormal. I was allowed to ask questions, be angry, and have fears. Being a Christian and trusting God to reveal his best plan in our lives can help a person through the grief process, but there still is a normal progression through grief that even most Christians cannot escape. Thank God he is there to walk the road of grief with us but we must not think that we are slipping spiritually if we have a bad day or a setback in our grieving. 
I often wondered, what is wrong with me? Carl wasn't angry, fearful, or questioning. I now know there are as many ways of grieving as there are people, and also that many thoughts or feelings I may have are not necessarily unique to me. It is very easy to sit back and criticize the way a person is grieving. I didn't like the way my parents were handling their grief. For some reason, it was very oppressive to me. I wanted them to be able to show some joy. I was wrong. I should have allowed them to grieve in their own unique way, just as others were allowing us to grieve in our own way. We found out later that older people sometimes find it more difficult to deal with the death of a young child than other age groups. Why should this child die at such a young age? Why not me? I've lived a good long life. Later, my dad shared with us through tears that he had an especially hard time handling Andy's death. They had stayed with us for a short time, only a couple of months before the drowning, and Andy was finally starting to warm up to him a little bit. There was a little game they played when Dad walked in the door. You come here and give Grandpa a hug. No! And off he'd run. Dad would then ignore him, and soon he'd feel a little tug at his pant leg. Andy was ready for a hug. It had to be his idea. When Mom and Dad returned to Florida after Andy's death, this little game was often reenacted in Dad's mind. As he would go about his daily routine, he often felt that little tug on his pant leg. He knew it was only the wind, or maybe he'd brushed up against a piece of furniture, but it was a very cruel reminder of our loss. Ironically, my dad was the first one to be reunited with Andy. He went to be with the Lord and Andy on Valentine's Day, just a year and a half after Andy's death. I realize my knowledge of what will be like in heaven is very limited, but I like to think of them enjoying heaven's glories together. We were learning that we also needed to allow our children to grieve in their own special ways. They were handling Andy's death fairly well. They thought it was really neat that Andy could walk through walls now, just like Jesus. We had all gained a new appreciation for heaven. Trisha's way of grieving met with my approval. She cried often and expressed her hurts and fears. Melissa's grieving was hard for me to understand. When we told her Andy had gone to be with Jesus, she smiled and said, Why? I wanted to wring her neck. She was supposed to cry. She held her grief in, and it showed up months later after Danny was born. I was changing Danny on the dressing table. Our conversation went something like this. Where did we get that sleeper, Mom? This was one of Andy's, honey. After a long pause, the angry retort came. Why did you let Andy go outside? I knew I had to allow her to be angry. I wept as I answered her. Honey, would you like it if Mommy kept you in the house and never let you go out? No. Well, we couldn't always keep Andy in either. We didn't know he went out, though. I wanted to dwell on the positive. But anyway, now he's with Jesus, and he's so happy. Another pause, and then, Well, 
Why did God want him to fall in the creek? I continued to weep. I had no answer, but reminded her of God's love for Andy and our family. Her grief was working its way out. Chapter 17. It's a Boy. The deepest and longest depression time for me came just after the birth of our second son, Danny. We were all thrilled with his arrival. Neighbors, friends, and relatives were especially excited. He was given so much attention you would have thought he was our first. We all needed Danny to express our excess love and fill our empty arms. We'd had babies in our home for eight years, and it felt strange to be without one for those four and a half months between Andy's death and Danny's birth. The touch of a newborn was healing. God had blessed our home with Danny's presence, but something was wrong. I think the seeds of my depression were planted during my hospital stay. How many children do you have? The same question over and over. Should I say four or five? I could not betray Andy's memory and say four. I invariably fumbled for the right words, mentioned having a baby boy in heaven, and then tried to go on with the conversation on a lighter note. If I stated that we had three girls at home, the next statement was inevitable. Oh, you finally got a boy! Everyone thought it was just wonderful that we had a boy. That bothered me. How could they possibly think having another boy would make our situation any better? There was no way we could replace Andy with another son. In fact, in my mind, it was worse having a boy. Andy would have been Danny's big brother. They could have been such good friends. Now, Danny would never know that relationship. Even now, I still have a problem wishing for Danny that we had not lost Andy. But at that point, it just didn't seem fair. I couldn't see any good thing that had happened as a result of Andy's death. I finally shared all of this anger with Carl. His response was, you just refuse to focus on the future. I felt as though I'd been spanked. That future stuff is all well and good, but you can't mother a hope. You can't hug an idea. I knew I was showing a complete lack of trust in God, and it bothered me, but Carl never showed any shock. He let me express my emotions. I now know that God loved me in spite of my rantings and ravings, just as we still love our children when they throw temper tantrums because they don't understand our actions. God was very patient with me. Chapter 18. Help Arrives It was near the end of this time of depression that I came across the book I mentioned before, Morning Song, by Joyce Landorf. She explained the stages of grief that most people have to deal with. The denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. I did not go through these stages in order, but found myself moving in and out of the various stages at random. As I looked back at our experience, I could see myself responding in denial, anger, bargaining, and depression. I was normal. It was so good to know that I was not the only person to ever react this way. The book gave me the lift that I needed. The timing was right, and God knew I was ready for it. 
I cannot truthfully say that I never had another day of painful grieving after God dealt with me through that book, but when I did have a bad day, I could view it as a very normal experience and know that God would bring me through it as he had before. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received was given to me by a friend whose husband was killed in a plane crash. Plan ahead. Prepare your heart and mind for the anniversary of his death, his birthdays, Mother's Day, holidays, etc. Then make plans to make it a day of good memories. I had no idea that the first Mother's Day would hurt so. I had the four other children. I should have been thankful for the blessing of their little lives. Instead, my mind dwelt on the loss of one child. That day, we did not make good Mother's Day memories. Her suggestion was positive and constructive. On the anniversary of Andy's death, I was prepared. I went out to lunch with some of my friends, and others were praying for us. It was a good day. Chapter 19 Reflections Why did we lose our Andy? What was God's purpose? What did we learn? We know God had reasons for allowing Andy's death. We don't know some of them until we get to heaven. We won't know some of them until we get to heaven, but a few of them have been revealed to us. We were taught some important things about guilt through our experience with Andy. How could we possibly have an absence of guilt? We should have known Andy's whereabouts instead of each assuming the other person had him. The following are some things we learned. Number one, you cannot avoid guilt. It has to be handled or it will destroy you like a cancer. Number two, it is not from God. Satan would like to use it to defeat you. Number three, it can be erased if God is in control of your chalkboard. As I stated before, we many times wish things could have been different, but never, even when we were being questioned about our parenting, did guilt ever overtake us. The only way to erase the guilt is to turn it over to God. He doesn't want us to live under that burden. Psalm 55:22. It may not be removed immediately for everyone, as it was for us, but I fully believe that if God delivered us from the weight of guilt, he can do it for anyone. We also learned much about inner peace. We feel that because of God's grace and the blanket of peace with which he covered us, we were able to say and do many things that were pleasing to him and reflected his power. Where did the joy and peace come from? We told everyone that crossed our path that they came from God. He was our source of strength. It wasn't an act, it was real. We wanted him to receive the glory, and we feel he did. He also was given an opportunity to show that he cares for his children financially. He dealt with people's hearts and they were willing to share. They received a blessing and God received the glory. There were several things we learned about how to express our love and concern when someone is grieving. These are a few of them. Number one. I think we often feel that Christians should not be allowed to express these emotions. God is much more forgiving than we are. Number two, I had some friends who I'm sure got tired of hearing about what I was going through, but talking is healing, and they were willing to just listen. 
Number three, Carl and I could feel when the prayers for us were letting up. We didn't blame people for forgetting, but it was such a blessing to us to hear about those who were still upholding us in prayer. We have some very special friends whose son was born on Andy's first birthday. We knew they were praying for our sense of loss on his second birthday, as were many others. But it comforts us to know that they continue to remember us and pray for us each year on Andy's birthday. Number four, don't ask what you can do to help. Just do it. Bring in meals, babysit, take them out to eat, etc. One group of friends called to ask if we needed meals. We declined the offer. Another group of friends got together, organized meals, and brought them to our home to put in the freezer. They were greatly appreciated, and with all of the out-of-town company, they were quickly used. Number five, don't try to put them in a mold by deciding their way of grieving is abnormal. Number six, some people were very uncomfortable talking with us about Andy or even speaking his name. We wanted to keep his memory alive. We felt he was still part of our family. Number seven, some of our close friends came to the funeral home weeping so hard that they could barely talk to us. They may have felt that they were making it harder for us, but that wasn't true. They couldn't make our pain any worse. We were already hurting as much as any two people could hurt. Their tears only showed us how much they cared about us. Number eight, we had many friends invite us to their homes, have me over for coffee, take me to garage sales or shopping. We knew what they were doing. Keeping busy was like taking an aspirin for cancer. It didn't cure the grief. It only helped relieve the pain for a little while but we appreciated all those who helped us pass a little time. Chapter 20, Acceptance. The final stage, it did come. For Carl, it was a very easy step. For me, it was a long, hard road. But I knew I was at the end of my journey when I could be truly thankful for having had Andy for 20 months instead of being depressed about losing him. I knew it was over when I could walk over the bridge, look at the creek, and enjoy the God-created beauty of our property. I thank God for the stage of acceptance. He never meant for us to get bogged down in anger and depression forever. I can't imagine living in that oppressive state for longer than I did. Acceptance has come, but along with acceptance, there are still questions. Someday, like Andy, I will have perfect knowledge and be able to understand God's perfect plan. I look forward to that day when I'll be reunited with my baby and forever with my Lord.